It's a bit hard because um, I was telling Pete this morning, by the way, I'm not going to do anything crazy this morning. I don't want you to think, think that this is a preface to that. But I told Pete this, this morning, I'm like, man, with a shooting this week, talking about refugees and then getting into the book of Amos. It's like foreboding there, Amos. Like you guys are like, I don't know. You haven't taught us about Amos yet, so what are we, what are we supposed to do? Like we're getting into the book of Amos. Um, I'm like, man, with all these things, like if there was ever a Sunday where I could blow up a conservative evangelical church, I was like, this would be that Sunday. And I was like, don't worry, Pete. I'm, I don't feel any inclination to blow up the church. He's like, hey, whatever you got to do. Whatever you got to do. Pete is a bad influence. Don't let him hang around your children um, or, uh, or whatnot. He's a bad influence. But uh, this is just an interesting Sunday. I just feel like there's a lot of truths floating around here that are a bit disruptive to the status quo. So I'm going to jump. I'm going to change my outline here and jump in to that part of Amos. So chapter 7, um, it's not the disruptive message of Amos. It's, it's, it's what happens when someone is disruptive. So chapter 7, we see this prophet who has been preaching. And we see that uh, in verse 10, Um, that Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, Bethel is kind of the center of the northern um, country. So like Pete taught last week, you had the 12 tribes of Israel break up into 11 and 1, with the dominant 11 on the top being referred to as Israel. The one on the south, the southern kingdom, um, the kingdom of Judah or the tribe of Judah, being more of the Jerusalem, kind of the historic Judaism kind of group. And up in the north, they're going to worship in a different place. They're going to begin to kind of go a different way. And so you have these two realities. Amos is going to be a southerner. Um, the, The nation of Israel goes into exile first. And then eventually Judah goes into exile as well. But they're kind of two different kingdoms, two different realities that God is dealing with as he slowly brings judgment and sends them into exile. So Amos is going to come up from the south and preach. And the, the, the head area here is kind of Bethel. And, and so this high priest of Bethel um, comes and sends a message to the king. And he says, Amos is raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. The land cannot bear all his words, for this is what Amos is saying. And he twists Amos' words, and he says, Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. Uh, he had said that the house of Jeroboam would fall to the sword. So uh, Amaziah is kind of twisting the words a little bit, making it sound even more extreme, which is, which is funny, like when you've got a prophet who's extreme, but you can always make it sound a little more extreme, right? Um, And then Amaziah said to Amos, get out, you seer, go back to the land of Judah. So go back to the southern kingdom, go back to where you're from, earn your bread there and do your prophesying there. Don't prophesy anymore at Bethel because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. It's really fascinating. This is the king's sanctuary. This is where the king shouldn't have anyone leaning in on him. This is where there shouldn't be any pressure coming to the king or to the power. Nothing should call into question the power. And so not only that, this is the king's sanctuary, but this is where the temple is. So this is where the dominant political religious system is set up, and and we don't want you um, leaning into that in any kind of way and disrupting it. 
You're not supposed to be disruptive to the system. Do you see that? And then it continues. Um, Amos answers Amaziah and he says, I was neither a prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a shepherd and I took care of sycamore figs. So in other words, I wasn't a prophet. This wasn't like my office or my career when I decided to come up to, to the north here to Israel. I'm not, it's not something I'm trying to make a name for myself on. I'm not, it's not something I'm really trying to make uh, myself rich on. I, I was a shepherd and I took care of fig trees. But the word of the Lord came to me. He called me to go prophesy. The Lord took me from tending the flock and he said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. And now then, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel and stop preaching against the house of Isaac. This is what the Lord then says. Your wife will become a prostitute in the city and your sons and daughters will fall by the sword. Your land will be measured and divided up and you yourself will die in a pagan country. And Israel will certainly go into exile away from their native land. What's going on here? The prophet being called by God sent to the northern kingdom to bring a message, a message that's disruptive to the economic, the political, and the religious power structures that's disruptive to it. And the whole purpose is that it's going to be disruptive because the way the establishment has so um, patterned themselves, that, that the way they're set up is not going to bring about the will of God. It's not, it's not pleasing to God. So God himself has called someone to bring a disruptive message that the establishment might change to better approximate the will of God or be obedient. And the system is doubling down and saying, you're disruptive, you're a radical, you're subversive. So we want to use our political and religious power to push you out so that we don't have to hear your disruptive message or that nobody will be infected by that because this system will not change. It's protected. It's the sanctuary. It's the temple. We don't want it to change because if it were to change, we would have to change. Or if it were to change, it would be being changed by outsiders. And we, those who are leading, would lose our political, our religious, or our economic power. And so instead of having to go through that process of pain, we're going to push you, the one who's bringing the word of God, out. And so then God says to Amos, tell them, because you will not hear this word, because you're not willing to be inconvenienced, because you're not willing to question yourselves and say, maybe we're doing it wrong, or maybe we've been disobedient, maybe something has happened to where we've been living for ourselves or protecting ourselves rather than, than using our power or privilege to help others or to bring about a just society. Maybe something's wrong. Maybe we should listen. Instead of doing this, you've pushed out the word of God and therefore foreign invaders will come in and they will literally decimate your family. If you think of war in the ancient Near East, uh, the men would be killed. The rest of the family would go into slavery. That's what slavery was early on. It wasn't because of the color of his skin. It was who lost the battle, the war. And the losers, the people, would be brought into the victor's country and they would then be slaves or serve as slaves, regardless of the color of their skin. That's what, where slavery in the ancient world kind of came from. Okay? 
So this is what's happening. And there's something really fascinating in there that challenges me to uh, my core. Um, Next Sunday, we have Antioch. We kind of do it every year, but we have Antioch's birthday service. Uh, Happy birthday, Antioch. We're not even old enough yet to speak rationally. We're nine. Uh, No critical thinking, no abstract thinking. Um, Yeah, I mean, we have better days ahead of us. Uh, But yeah, we turn nine next Sunday at Antioch. And so we've been around for a little while. And I get to a book like this, and, and it's really interesting to me. Because in this book, you see a dominant message coming, a prophetic message coming. And the whole book is driving that one message all the way through. We can do the book of Amos in one sermon. We can't do that with the gospel of John, which is historical narrative, the gospel narrative. Can't do it with the book of Romans and all the chapters in the book of Romans, 15 or whatever, right? Um, Or 1 Corinthians. Like you could take a year or two years to preach through all of the different things being said in Romans or 1 Corinthians and all the nuance and all of Paul's little kind of bits and, and whatnot. You get to Amos and it's like, we can do that one Sunday, no problem. Maybe even we'll just do it quick and be done with it, right? Why? Because it's got one dominant driving message. But the interesting, uh, interesting thing about that one dominant driving message is, is simply this. It's a prophetic message. It's a dissenting voice, a subversive, disruptive voice to the status quo, trying to speak to those that are in economic, political, or religious power that have created systems that don't accomplish the will of God or the ends of God. And that message is to say, those of you that, that build the structures these ways, you have to be willing to hear this disruptive message such that you'd be willing to submit or repent and then therefore forgive, uh, ask forgiveness of God and change the priorities of how that community or, or kind of the temple system is structured and become more a vessel of God to the ends of his kingdom. Like that's, that's the path here. And it, it's as true today as it was in Amos's time that God is always bringing a word from the outside to call his people back to faithful, um, faithful living, faithful and obedient living. That our time, our energy, our money, our resources, the way we're willing to talk about or think about the priorities of God would be, would be situated in such a way that it doesn't guard our own righteous pretensions, but allows us to come back into faithful living Uh, with God our Father. It's as true today as it was then. So here's the challenge that comes up for me. I find a battle going on, three battles. One I don't want to talk about, two two I don't mind talking about. The one I don't want to talk about is the battle of hypocrisy, and that's an ongoing battle. That's all I'll say to that one, right? Um, For me, personally. I'll get to that in a, a verse later. But the battle is between me as a leader and me as a teacher, What's the, what's the driving goal for me as a leader of people? It's, it's to gather people, to create a certain culture that's healthy, that people would be happy, they would serve, uh, they would tithe, 
that they would get involved with each other, that this thing would slowly grow and flourish, and, and that's the goal of a leader. Does that make sense? It's pretty, pretty understandable. So as a teacher, I get to a book like Amos, and Amos is this voice that I'm supposed to take on myself, right? This is the word of God, and when someone preaches on a Sunday morning, they're supposed to take on and speak as if speaking the very words of God, which is why it helps when, when you're starting with the word of God, and you're supposed to then carry that message, and when you're in the prophets, the message is a prophetic one, and the prophetic word does what? Prophetic word explodes things. That's why my comment to Pete, man, I could, could really explode things. It's real simple. I could bring up immigration, gun control, LGBTQ, um, I don't know, uh, Black Lives Matter, and one or two other things, uh, and, and I would explode this church. Wouldn't I? Because there are things in this community and, I, and in most communities, evangelical communities around the country, that we don't want to hear about, don't want to talk about, don't allow anyone standing on stage with a Bible in his hands to talk about. Um, we, those are out of bounds. They're taboo. Um, they're taboo. I haven't even told you what I would say about those things. Do you get that? I just mentioned the topics, militarism, American militarism, uh, rich and poor, uh, welfare. St- I could keep going. I, I, I'm not even going to tell you what I, you know, universal health care. I'm not even going to tell you what I would say about those things. But if I were to bring up those topics, everyone would immediately get uncomfortable, feel like I'm violating something spiritually I'm hitting a taboo uh, subject or topic and a lot of people would begin to wonder if this is a church that's safe or if Ken has become liberal, which is, you know, conservative speak for um, he's, he's now out of bounds and, and a bad person. <laughs> you warn your kids about, like Pete. Um, um What's going on there? What's going on is that we have taboo topics, meaning we've circumscribed areas that the church or our religion is not allowed to touch. Creation care, another one. Um, Which basically means if you don't talk, if you talk about other things other than this, okay. If you talk about this, not okay. Meaning you're subversive, you're radical, you're spreading dissent, uh, and you're disruptive. Disruptive to what? Disruptive to our religious climate of status quo-ness, where we can all kind of get along by not talking about things that would really challenge us or, or force us to wrestle with, with values or our disagreements with other people and might really kind of be hard to control. So that those in economic, political, or religious power would, would somehow feel like it's all getting away from them and that they don't know where that's going to lead or that they don't even know how to bring a fresh word into that. And so what is the response from a leader's standpoint um, is that we're not going to have any of that. 
We're going to talk about a lot of things. You need to love your wife. And you need to love your kids. And you should be a good witness at work. We're going to talk about a lot of things. But we're not going to talk about anything taboo. Beginning of Amos, let me just roll you through it. Uh, We've got some verses that are going to come up later. These ones aren't. But Amos 1, the words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, and what he saw concerning Israel. Then we go on down to verse 3. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Three things so significant that I will judge them, if not for just those three or four things. Um, Because they threshed Gilead. Then it continues. uh, uh, Verse 6. For three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because she took captive whole communities and sold them into slavery to Edom. Uh, Second part of verse 9. For three sins of Tyr, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because she sold whole communities of captives away. Verse 10, for three sins of Edom, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath because he pursued his brother with a sword, stifling all compassion. Verse 12, for three sins of Ammon, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath because he ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead. In other words, in victory, in military victory, conquering and decimating the people conquered. Chapter 2, for Three sins of Moab, even for four. I will not turn back my wrath because he burned as if to lime the bones of Edom's Edom's king. And I will send fire upon Moab that will consume the fortresses. Moab will go uh, go down in great tumult amid war cries and the blast of the trumpets. I'm going to come and deal with this uh, in punishment the way that it was meted out. Kind of an eye for an eye that God's bringing. And then he gets into this, verse 4, chapter 2, verse 4. For three sins of Judah. This is Judah, the tribe of Judah. This is Jesus comes from the line of Judah. For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept my decrees. Because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. And I will send fire upon Judah. So it's not that they've gone and conquered and decimated a people but they've turned to false gods and they've been persuaded by economic wealth. They've been persuaded by consumerism to leave the God that calls them out of selfish living, to follow local deities, the gods of their ancestors, uh, ancestors that are there to serve them and allow them to be consumeristic. Does that make sense? And then it says this in verse six, for three sins of Israel, the northern, Even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground, and they deny justice to the oppressed. Um, It begins to continue on. We get to chapter four, and it says in verse six, I gave you empty stomachs in every city and a lack of bread in every town, and yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Part of, of your lack Part of your suffering, 
part of your difficulty, part of the striving that you're enduring as supposedly a people named by God. Part of that is coming at my hands and it's meant to turn you back to where you would seek me. You would say, God, what is happening that this is, this is going on with us, that our land is not being blessed, that is, is not flourishing, such that God could send a prophet to say, hey, here's, here's why that is happening. And they would say, far be it for us to continue in that way and to continue to get the dissatisfaction or displeasure of God. We will repent and come back to God. This is what God was hoping for, that he would send Amos to a people that were looking to change or to find out what does God require of us. And yet God says, you did not turn. You did not listen. You're not hungry for that. Um, you have not returned to me. Verse 10 of chapter 4, I sent plagues among you as I did to Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword along with your captured horses. I filled your nostrils with the stench of your camps, yet you have not returned to me. He invokes the plagues that God sent to, to Egypt. Egypt, it was like, here's a hardened, uh, hearted emperor and uh, the Pharaoh and his people are hardened and they're not going to change. But God wants to bring at least the Israelites out from Egypt. And so he begins to send these really intense plagues to crush those who had a hard heart so that the ones that he's dealing with could come out. And God said, I began to deal with you that way to crush you, that I might refine and bring out something. And even this is not going well. And so God begins to prophesy about where there was 100, there's only going to be 10 left. And where there was 10, there's only going to be one left. I will so crush it that, that there will only be a little bit of good that will remain, but at least that is worth it. I'll cut off most of the peach that's brown to save that one part that's good. I will do whatever it is to preserve and protect those who will follow me. So in chapter five, we get this in verse 14. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. So when the question comes, all of this is happening. Destruction is happening. What do I do? What do I do? If God is angry, what do I do? If, if you have a little kid that's angry, that's smaller than you, that's, that's less consequential than you, like a little three-year-old boy throwing a temper tantrum, right? What do you do? If that kid is angry, what do you do? You lock him up. You confine him. You put him behind closed doors where he's not going to cause too much damage to anything that's breakable or cost too much or too much damage to himself or whatever. But you, you confine the angry child. What do you do when you're the child and the one who's angry is God? There's nowhere to lock God up. You can lock yourself up, but there's nowhere to shelter yourself from the anger of a God. And so you find yourself asking, what, what God should we do? What must we do? And this is where it begins to turn and the answer is seek good, again, chapter 5, verse 14, seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you just as you say that he is. Fascinating verse. Fascinating verse. The establishment will always say they're the righteous establishment. The establishment will always say God is with us. 
I want to always say that God is at Antioch, working through Antioch and in Antioch, and is with us. Um, it's not always true, however, when people say God is with them, that God is truly with them. A lot of times, hypocritically, as individuals or as families or as churches or even as whole Protestant or Catholic denominations, um, we want to claim God and God is saying, look, I know you already claim me. It's not true, but if you were to turn and relent and be obedient by seeking what is good, then I would actually be with you. You would actually live as you think I already am. It's a fascinating verse. Fascinating verse. And then we switch over to chapter, uh, the later part of chapter five, and we'll pick these verses up on the screen. And this is kind of the heart of the book of Amos, the more famous part of Amos, but it begins in uh, chapter five, verse 21. And it says this, I hate... I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. B basically what this means is um, a husband who goes and cheats on a wife and he comes back for the anniversary the next week and says, I got really good anniversary plans. You know we always do the anniversary, right? Um, what a wonderful time that is. We're going we're gonna to go here. We're going to do these things and I've booked... Um, the best tours, and I've saved no expense. We're going to celebrate our, our, our tradition. We do this every year. Um, and, and aren't I a good husband? And the wife would look at the husband and say, you, you're despicable. I despise you. I despise what you're trying to do here. And the fact that you don't even see how hypocritical that is, like, just disgusts me. And God is talking to a group of people who are living not in any way that he has asked them to live with regard to their fellow man or love of neighbor. They're not listening to the prophets that he's sending. They're not listening to the discipline that he's brought them. Yet they're always doing religious things, going to church on Sunday, uh, sacrificing at the altar, praying to God. And God says, I hate I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies when you get together and sing songs in my name. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of, of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will send you into exile but beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is God Almighty. We continue in chapter 6, and it says, Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, and woe to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria you notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. Go to Kelna and look at it. Go from there to the great Hamath and then go down to Gath and Philistia. Are they better off than your two kingdoms? Is their land larger than yours? You put off the day of evil and bring near a reign of terror. You lie on beds inlaid with ivory and lounge on your couches. You, you dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise 
on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions, but you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, you will, go, uh, you will be among the first to go into exile, and your feasting and lounging will end. Here's the hypocrisy part for me. I'm talking about me, purely me here. Um, you lie on beds inlaid with ivory. You use your wealth and your money and your resources to have these fineries, these beds, right? So Tamara and I, um, we're quite a pair. Uh, my stomach's wrecked. Um, her back gives her issues. And so uh, a year and a half ago, two years ago, we went to all the bed stores and got talked into like the bed that was supposed to cure everything. If you go to a bed store, supposedly the bed you buy like actually cures everything. Like everything. Like warts, just buy this bed. It'll get rid of your warts. Like seriously, your kids are misbehaving, put them on this bed, they'll get enough sleep and they'll be like angels. Um, So we like bought like the really nice bed. So I'm like looking at this, I'm like, you know, I had good, good reasons for it. And that's what we always do, right? Like immediately the mind starts going, I'm not like them. They're bad and I'm good. I'm not like them. But I'm like, wow, okay. Uh, I got a nice bed. Got a nice bed. Uh, you, do, uh, you dine on choice lambs. You know, we went to uh, Hood River to go apple picking on Friday. And one of the places had like really good meats. Uh, so grass-fed, organic, locally sourced, all this stuff. And so we came home with some, some choice lamb meat and goat meat. Don't judge. Um, and so I'm like, I'm like, okay, I eat pretty well. Um, you strum away on your harps like David and improvise on your musical instruments. I like music. I like the musicality of the group here. Uh, Our kids are all in music lessons, and I love the fact that someday they're going to be really cultured, that that I can take them to the Hollywood Bowl, and they're going to be, like, teaching me stuff, because I don't know anything, and and I I like that idea, and there's nothing wrong with that idea, but it's interesting. All of these things are things that if, if you're doing these things but have no regard for others, are not being inconvenienced by the other have no vision in your life of how to serve God's ends if all of these things are happening devoid of um, the poor or the vulnerable or the needy then God is saying somehow you're taking all the blessing as privilege just for yourself not as something you can steward not just for yourself but for the blessing of others as well Your concern doesn't go beyond you or your family, which means there's no love of neighbor. The whole point of the Good Samaritan passage was was that Jesus is like, yeah, you you love the people that love you back. I get that. There's not much moral, like, wonderfulness about that. What's really amazing is if you love people that there's really nothing but inconvenience. And they're kind of nothing to you. They're not family, not friend, maybe not even the same tribe as you. But yet you, you see their need and you go, man, if I was in their situation, it'd be really nice if someone was willing to stop, bandage me up, take me to the hotel, the hospital, whatever it is, pay the innkeeper so that I could be nursed back to health. Boy, wouldn't that, that be amazing. And because that's what I would want, I'm willing to do that for the other. And so I'm going to use my money, my mule, my time as, as all resources that I can bend into society and help others as God leads me to. 
So I'm looking at this and I'm like, wow, bed, lamb, meat, music. And then this one doesn't hit me, but it hits all the rest of you. Uh, bowl fulls of wine. I know you guys all get growlers. It, seriously, you guys have good beer. Um, I can't drink beer. I'm switching it from wine to beer because then I can judge you and leave myself off. Um, but I can't drink beer, and I know you all do, and you, you fill it by the growler full. And any one of you that shop at Whole Foods are um, getting the finest lotions. <laughs> and you use the finest lotions. And those of you that are into like those doTERRA oils and you think they cure everything, um, like warts and kids that misbehave and whatever, like you have the finest lotions. What does a disruptive word look like to us? What does a disruptive word, subversive word, radical word look like to us? See, Jesus came and he was so disruptive to the temple complex that the religious leaders, that just like they didn't want Amos, didn't want Jesus. So they get the other empire there, the Romans, and they say, this guy's disruptive to what we've got going here, the status quo, the establishment. And so they conspire and they kill Jesus as king of the Jews. And then early church in Rome, you've got people being brought into the Colosseum and killed Men, women, children, elderly, lions ripping them apart and they're collecting up these people. Why? Because these people are disruptive to the empire. They're saying that the, the Caesar isn't really the son of a God and that they can't swear an allegiance to that over and above their allegiance to Yahweh or to Jesus who is their king and that they're going to live a different kind of life and they're going to say there's standards here that we have to live by for our, our love of neighbor or the foreigner. We just can't use slaves because as an empire we've We've somehow won a military victory and now we have all these people here and we can't just misuse these people and we can't just play with the law because economically we're going to gain. We stand against that system and it's disruptive and they were killed for it. They were killed for it. So what does it look like when, when we're trying to talk on a Sunday morning and say somehow we all want the status quo, I somehow want the status quo we're hurting for money at this church. We've had to reduce the salary of several people. One of them a pregnant woman. Because we can't, as a community, value spiritual things as much as we value play and as much as we value being involved in, in all the little causes, we want to be here to enjoy church and spiritual community and what it brings. But we don't really look at this and say, man, there's something simple about life, about me following God, walking as a disciple with the people of God in this church community, and that my resources, before I go and utilize those or dream about those, I'm somehow contributing to what God's doing on, uh, going on with the church. Like, I want the status quo because maybe, like, tithing gets better. Like, I, I, I find that urge to complacency in me deeply. But then you come to Amos, and it's like, um, are we even worth existing if we can't speak prophetically or disruptively 
if we can't talk about truth, if we can't call ourselves into account and say, man, there's something really radical about what God wants from us. And the answer to keep that at bay is always what I call group righteousness. Group righteousness means I've, I've identified with a group that we all say is the good group. And because we all say it's a good group, then we're kind of immune from criticism. And since we're immune from criticism, we can continue to reinforce to each other that we're the good group and the good guys by proxy. And therefore, whenever a word comes about something prophetic or disruptive or judgment, it must be for somebody else. It cannot be for us because we're the good group. And so group righteousness does a lot of damage. And it worked in Jesus' day. The establishment, the majority weren't listening to what Jesus said. They were like, wow, your message is harsh. And don't you know we're good Jews? And we go to the temple and we're a part of the system and we mean what's well and we do all of the religious feasts and festivals and rituals and we go to all the assemblies. Jesus, why are you calling us into account? Shouldn't you be talking about Caesar, the Romans? Shouldn't your bad guy be our bad guy? And so they push Jesus out. And so that's how group righteousness works. And it's amazing that if you say one thing negative about America, you're somehow non-patriotic. I don't know what history you've studied, but there, has, there have been amazing things about this country always mixed with some horrible things about this country. And if we can't speak honestly that there has been good and bad and that we're hoping for a better day where there's more good than there is bad. We're always talking about going back to America's greatness. I'm like, which decade was that? I don't remember studying that decade when we were perfect. The greatest generation, my grandpa, unbelievable. I agree with the work ethic and all of what Tom Brokaw wrote about. But that was also the generation of Jim Crow. And I look at pictures of my mom and, and what she looked like in the, in the 50s and, and early 60s. And then I look at the pictures of white communities with somebody lynched hanging in the background. And this is a Friday night party after the football game. And I'm like, those pictures are taken in the same time period. Like, we're, we're choosing to forget if we want to always play that somehow there was this great era when we were righteous, and if we just get back to that American great, I'm like, it's always been messy. Can't we look to the future and collectively dream something better? But if we can't be honest with even America without being called unpatriotic, then somehow we've, we've given a birth to America and said America is righteous, and we're righteous by, by virtue of being a part of her, and anyone that questions her is questioning us. We're both righteous, so you must be bad. We can't hear what you're going to say. And if someone's going to speak prophetic words, obviously it can't be to us because we're the good guy. So what you must be saying is for that person over there or that country or that ethnicity or that religion because they're the bad guys. And we've somehow made ourselves immune. We're protecting the status quo, protecting the establishment, and we've become, in Walter Brueggemann's words, domesticated. I want to show you a little clip because I felt like I had to speak truthfully today just so that I could sleep tonight um, and feel like I, I don't compromise, right? But so at Kilns, we do fun things. Every week, we Skype into different professors around the country. If you're not taking a Kilns class, I don't know why not, because it's unbelievable. So we had Jerry Root, the C.S. Lewis scholar, two weeks ago. This past week, we had Brueggemann, Walter Brueggemann, 82 years old, 
Old Testament theologian, retired, and I, I, he kept using this word um, domesticated. So empire to him is the dominant political economic structure that seeks to define reality. It's not evil empire, it's just empire. And the kingdom of God, which is trying to define reality for God's citizens, is a very different thing than empire of the world that takes its economic and political power and seeks to define reality differently than God would define it. Does that make sense? It's very just simple that way. And so what he was talking about is when the church gets domesticated by empire such that we, we give a pass to a whole lot of empire that, that we're not going to call into question prophetically or in the prophetic tradition because somehow we've harmonized with that. And so then we don't go there. And so we asked him, like, how do you know what's domesticated or when something's domesticated? So this is a 45-second little clip, and uh, it's a little bit rowdy, and that's okay, but I like, I like you hearing it from someone else's mouth. So here goes Walter Brueggemann. Enculturation of the church? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I just think um, uh, what you can do to test that is make a list of all the things that you cannot talk about in the church that we ought to be talking about. Most of the church that I know, you cannot, you cannot talk about uh, U.S. militarism. Uh, you cannot talk about the... Uh, economic gap of the wage and the uh, of wages of the of the poor and the rich you, you cannot talk about any of that critically uh, in a way that would that would suggest that the system needs to be changed that's just a little bit of Brueggemann in the long conversation talking about you what you want to see what's going on just sit down and write a list of what you can't talk about um, I felt that this week with the gun violence in Oregon. I'm like, wow, it'd be really interesting to talk about that. Oh, but I can't. Because it doesn't matter what I say, all of a sudden I'm going to politicize the whole congregation without even saying anything. And I'm like, we are, we are so entrenched in some of the things that we buy into as taboo that I don't think we can go, what does it really look like to have a serious conversation? about a disruptive conversation that would allow us to hear all of what God would say to us, not just the things that I'm willing to hear. And what would it look like if we were so receptive to the disruptive message of God that if and when God was disciplining us, we would catch it early enough or quick enough that we'd go like, oh, dang, maybe we veered a little bit here. Maybe we're a little too enamored with protecting our gathering or having the status quo that, that we kind of like aren't actually following God. And so maybe we can do a course correction. Maybe we can become supple enough that way. So Amaziah was determined to put Amos in the worst light because he was bringing a prophetic message. It's just interesting to me, the people that will talk about justice at Antioch will always say Ken's preaching the social gospel. Never preach the social gospel. Um, but you can take my really strong teachings on justice and try and make them more extreme as a way of pushing that out. Uh, Amaziah represented Amos to the king as ho hostile to the crown and the people of Israel. Antioch doesn't preach the real gospel. They're way too concerned with the social stuff. You know what another word for social stuff is? Here's a synonym. Love of neighbor. 
Sounds a little different when you put it that way. Antioch doesn't preach the gospel. They're way too concerned with love of neighbor. You know, Antioch doesn't preach the gospel of sin and salvation. They're way too hung up on Amos, of all things. Who even reads that book? It only says one thing. Why would you read Amos? You know what I mean? I'm speaking facetiously. Amaziah ordered that Amos refrain from preaching at Bethel. So in the end, the disruptive word is, is supposed to be kept at the edges. And we do this, don't we? Anything that begins to sneak that stuff in that might be disruptive, we, we turn on it. Don't you bring that up here. This isn't the place for that. Are you liberal? I bet you hang out with Pete, right? <laughs> uh, I'm going to just close with one statement and then uh, a quote by Timothy Keller that will be on the screen. But the statement is this. As in Amos, as in Jesus, as today, rich and righteous, as defined by religious adherence and ritual, go together easier than rich and just, as defined by love of neighbor. Timothy Keller puts it this way. Any neglect shown to the needs of the members of the vulnerable is not called merely a lack of mercy or charity, but a violation of justice. I want my kids who now sit in here to see their father willing to take strong looks at his own life and to be willing to speak truth even if it's disruptive. I want us as a church to be a church that values truth enough that we're always willing to hear something dissonant or disruptive so that we can then test the spirits and see if, maybe if, it actually jives with scripture and there's something we need to heed. That's what I, I aspire to more than good tithing uh, or numbers, but that an authentic expression uh, of Christianity would be manifested in Bend, Oregon by us as a church. And if that's the case, then there's a reason for us to exist and to continue to celebrate birthdays. Amen? Okay, thank you.